Um, just give you a little heads up. We will be doing some more singing, but we're going to read Job 36 and we're going to go into the message. I often um, think that I enjoy the song service more than you do because I, I know what the message is and I know that the song is reinforcing the message and so I've been thinking on this. So today we're going to try to get you into it to, that the songs will reiterate the message. So um, when I preach a while this morning and then say, Jason, come lead us in a song, don't have a heart attack thinking, he's letting us out early today. <laughs> no. Some things never happen, right? But um, so to try to help us gain the most from the truths of God's Word. And this week in studying Job, we are in Job 35, 36, and 37. I want to read in, verse, in chapter 36. I'll begin reading in verse 1. Elihu also proceeded and said, Bear with me a little, and I will show you that there are yet words to speak on God's behalf. I will fetch my knowledge from afar. I will ascribe righteousness to my Maker. For truly my words are not false. One who is perfect in knowledge is with you. Behold, God is mighty, but despises no one. He is mighty in strength of understanding. He does not preserve the life of the wicked, but gives justice to the oppressed. He does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous, but they are on the throne of kings, for he has seated them forever, and they are exalted. And if they are bound in fetters, held in the cords of affliction, then he tells them their work and their transgressions, that they have acted defiantly. He also opens their ear to instruction and commands that they turn from iniquity. If they obey and serve Him, they shall spend their days in prosperity and their years in pleasures. But if they do not obey, they shall perish by the sword and they shall die without knowledge. But the hypocrites in heart store up wrath. They do not cry for help when He binds them. They die in youth, and their life ends among the perverted persons. He delivers the poor in their affliction and opens their ears in oppression. Indeed, he would have brought out of dire distress into a broad place where there is no restraint. And what is set on your table would be full of riches. But you are filled with judgment, do the wicked. Judgment and justice take hold of you. Because there is wrath, beware lest he take you away with one blow, for a large ransom would not help you avoid it. Will your riches or all the mighty forces keep you from distress? Do not desire the night when people are cut off in their place. Take heed, do not turn to iniquity, for you have chosen this rather than affliction. Behold, God is exalted by His power. Who teaches like Him? Who has assigned Him His way? Or who has said, You have done wrong? 
Remember to magnify his work of which men have sung. Everyone has seen it. Man looks on it from afar. Behold, God is great, and we do not know him, nor can we num- can the number of his years be disco- discovered. For he draws up drops of water, which distill as rain from the midst, which the clouds drop down and pour abundantly on man. Indeed, can anyone understand the spreading of clouds, the thunder from his canopy? Look, he scatters his light upon it and covers the depths of the sea, for by these he judges the people. He gives food in abundance. He covers his hand with lightning and commands it to strike. His thunder declares it, the cattle also, concerning the rising storm. And then if you'd look in chapter 37 and verse 19. Teach us what we should say to him, for we can prepare nothing because of the darkness. Should he be told that I wish to speak? If a man were to speak, surely he would be swallowed up. Even now men cannot look at the light when it is bright in the skies, when the wind has passed and cleared them. He comes from the north as golden splendor. With God is awesome majesty. As for the mighty, the almighty, we cannot find him. He is excellent in power, in judgment, and abundant justice. He does not oppress Therefore, men fear him. He shows no partiality to any who are wise of heart. So chapter 37 ends Elihu's speech made up of several different segments that he began in chapter 32 and he runs all the way through chapter 37 without interruption, without Job responding at all without God rebuking him. Now, I have to admit, Elihu fell into the realm in my perspective of um, the fact that first impressions aren't always accurate. Um, You know, first impressions never get a second chance. But I just lumped Elihu in with all the other three friends of Job. And, and if you're looking for that, you can see that. Elihu didn't have what we would say is the best bedside manner, so to speak, all right? But when you get in and look at Elihu's um, overall message that he brought to Job, And you then begin looking that God rebuked Job's other three friends, but he didn't rebuke Elihu. That's a marked difference. And not only that, Elihu and God were in much agreement about major issues. We mentioned last week, Elihu is a transition between the three friends of Job that said, Job, you are a sinner, and this stuff is happening because you must have some sin. Confess your sin and make it right. Elihu came from a little different perspective. He said, we don't have any idea why this happened, 
But Job, how you're responding to this, you're in danger of sinning. And he went on and he built his case. And we find that some of the main points that Elihu gave, God was in agreement with them. And, and two weeks ago as I started studying this, and going into some of the other aspects of maybe I'm not seeing Elihu right. It's kind of like you're grinding gears, you know, in your mind. And it's like, you know, could this possibly be like this or, or what is it? And you will, find, you will find people on both sides of their view of Elihu. But even the ones that say Elihu was was just like the other three friends, they come back and say, but Elihu really came and had some good counsel. I, I want to point out to you four areas that what Elihu said to Job, God said it as well. And this, this chart was brought out to me in the book Beyond Suffering by Leighton Talbert. And, and as I started looking through this, it, it's fascinating to me. So just first of all, bear with me a moment. Look at chapter 33 of Job and verse 13. Elihu is speaking to Job and he says, verse 13, Why do you contend with him? For he does not give an accounting of any of his words. Turn to Job chapter 40 and verse 2. This is God speaking to Job. He began in chapter 40. Verse 1, Moreover, the Lord answered Job and said, Shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? He who rebukes God, let him answer it. So, the same phrase, the same word that Elihu used, God used. Okay, look in chapter 34 and verse 17. Chapter 34 and verse 17, Elihu is speaking to Job. Should one who hates justice govern, will you condemn him who is most just? Go to chapter 40 and verse 8, God continuing in his... um, Discourse with Job, verse 8, Would you indeed annul my judgment? Would you condemn me that you may be justified? So Elihu says, Who are you to be condemning God? And then later, God says, Who are you to be condemning me? Look in chapter 34 and verse 35. Again, Elihu is speaking. And he says, Job speaks without knowledge. His words are without wisdom. Also look in chapter 35 and verse 16. Therefore Job opens his mouth in vain. He multiplies words without knowledge. That's a pretty strong statement that he's giving. But you notice in chapter 38 and verse 2, The Lord answered Job, and notice what he says in verse 2. Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? So 
Elihu said, Job, you're speaking words without knowledge. Whoa, that's pretty strong. God comes along and says, Job, you're speaking words without knowledge. Look in chapter 42 and verse 3. God again says to Job, you ask, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? So, again, three times. One more, and then we'll move on. Chapter 35 and verse 2. Job basically is giving the impression that his righteousness is greater than God's. Elihu said, do you think this is right? You say, my righteousness is more than God's. Look in chapter 40 and verse 8. We already looked at that verse. But Would you indeed annul my judgment? Would you condemn me that you may be justified? I am justified. God is not. So, at least four times what Elihu said, someone else came along, God came along and reiterated it. You know, there's great great comfort when an expert comes along and gives the same counsel that you give in something. Well, God is the expert. And so we look at Elihu and we think, what's the difference between Elihu and Job's three friends? And why was he not rebuked by God? And why did God um, support him or not support him but reiterated the same truth? And I think it really comes down to the fact that Um, Elihu made much of God. Job's friends made much of Job and his sin. Elihu made much of God. And then the relationship that Job had to this great God. In, In chapter 35, verses 15 through... verses 5 through 15... We're not going to take the time, but he goes on and gives verbal descriptions of God's activity and character. And and basically in chapter 36 and verse 2, he's saying, I can't talk enough about God. And we're not going to go in and look at it, but he talks about his creation. He talks about his power. He talks about thunder and lightning and and in verse 4 of chapter 36, he's referring to God, for truly my words are not false, and in reference to God, one who is perfect in knowledge is with you, Job. Behold, God is the mighty one. And he goes on and addresses attention. He immediately focuses attention toward God who is perfect in knowledge, and makes reference to that. So he's directing Job toward God, Job's attention toward God. He's saying there, throughout this, there is no one like God. And for us to insinuate that he has done wrong or he has made a mistake, wait a minute, let's go back and think about God. Let's make much of God. And written across Job 36 and 37 could be these six words. It is all about our God. 
in whatever was happening to Job, it is all about our God. And that's basically what Elihu is saying, in especially in chapters 36 and 37. It is all about our God. And, and he said, we read the end of chapter 37, nothing compares to him. Let us never forget that. It is all about our God. So he's making much of God. He is um, turning the focus toward God. And so I want us to think today, how do we make much of God? I mean, we're not making God, but we are to be, Paul said, I want Christ to be magnified in my life. I can't make Christ any bigger or better than He is because He can't be made better. But I want people to be able to see Him clearly. And for us to make much of God, it begins by us embracing the littleness of man. Making much of man is something we are all very prone to do. We make much of ourselves. We make much of our ancestors. We make much of our heroes. We have a natural tendency to want to worship man. And making much of man is, is so futile. It's so vain. It's so empty because... As mankind, we are so limited. And the more we make of man, the less we make of God. And so it begins with us um, embracing the littleness of man. I mean, to understand the futility of mankind, how many of you here today and I'll ask you to raise your hand, how many of you would say you, you knew, and not just knew who they were, but you knew your grandparents in a, in a personal way, okay? All right? Now, a number of people weren't able to raise their hands because their grandparents were gone, okay? My wife said, what do you mean by knowing, right? <laughs> I mean, not know who they were or where they lived, but you really knew them. Okay, let me ask this. How many of you really knew your great-grandparents? Okay, like maybe five hands, six, seven, eight maybe, okay? We're only two generations removed. Lest you get an idea that mankind is all that important, by three generations, you will be a name on a tombstone that they might look at at Memorial Day. And that's it. Honestly. Great-grandparents? I mean, we look in the books, the old big Bibles that have the family heritage in it, you know that, and... And you go back and people study their ancestry trying to find something that gives them self-worth about their ancestors that came over here from who knows where. 
we never tell the stories about the criminals in our, in our history, do we? But what I'm trying to say is, as important as people may look today, the day is going to come when we aren't even remembered. But God will always be remembered. And we need to embrace the littleness of man. And, and it is refreshing to step back in the shadows of our own insignificance and turn our attention to God who is ultimately significant and the greatness of God. We take a major step toward maturity when we finally realize it's not about us. It's about God. And to realize that is profound. It's about God's magnificence. He talks about that, about His holiness, about His greatness, about His glory. It's all about God. And in this passage, in chapter 35, he goes on and says to realize man's sin doesn't harm God and man's righteousness does not help God in any way. In other words, God is not dependent on man. Sure, He's grieved over our sin. He takes delight in us honoring Him. But God is not diminished nor enhanced by our actions. That helps us see the insignificance of man. So, Embrace the littleness of man. Secondly, focus on his work and power. I mean, throughout this, and I'm not going to go into it this morning, but the works of God are, are everywhere we look. And, and to make the greatness of God, it's study any aspect of his creation And not only the works of God, but the power of God. And focus on that and think on that and and realize all power is given unto Him. Thirdly, focus on His character. Focus on His character. Um, I don't know, 18 months ago or so, we went through a study on the attributes of God. I mean, every attribute of God is in direct opposition to the attributes of man. And when we focus on man, we forget the attributes of God. But when we focus on the attributes of God, that God is all-knowing, His character, that He is good, that He is present with us, and so on... I mean, often in our life, and in many cases... We've lived a whole week or a whole month where we've seldom thought about the attributes of God. Elihu is lifting up the attributes of God. And, and he's turning Job's attention, and Job had no response for it. He didn't respond as he did to the others. So it's, it's focus on his work and power, focus on his character, and focus on his salvation. John said, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. I mean, 
we get used to the fact that through faith in Jesus Christ, we are children of God. We get used to that. But the reality is, focus on the greatness of this salvation of God, amazing grace that God has given to us. And, and the wonder of this forgiveness, I am totally unworthy, but God sent His Son to pay the penalty for my sin, the vileness, the arrogance of my pride, my rebellion against God. And God loved me while I was yet in sin, yet in rebellion against Him. And, and He brought me to new life in Christ. Focus on, that makes much of God. Because our salvation is all owed to God. It's not of anything that we have done. And we seldom think about this. Because we seldom see how condemned we were. We seldom see how vile we were. We seldom see how separated we were from the holiness of God. But this magnifies the greatness of God to focus on His salvation. So, we're going to stop right now and we're going to um, sing the first three verses of How Great Thou Art. And you'll note, in this song, it talks about the works of God. And in the first two verses, it talks about the works and power of God and His character. And in the third verse, I think it is, it talks about salvation. Isn't that the one that He gave His Son? So we're going to sing the first three verses. We'll come back and get the fourth verse in a little bit. But I want you to think about this. This song is making much of God. Making much of His works and power and character and salvation. You rejoice in that as we sing together. <clears throat> oh Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds I hands have made, I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder. Thy power throughout the universe displayed. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to Thee. How great Thou art, how great Thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to Thee. How great Thou art. Thou art, how great Thou art, then sings my soul. 
could have been written by Elihu. And in essence, Elihu was saying, look how great God is. Who are we to condemn Him? Who are we to say we are more righteous than He? And so on. He's making much of God. Not like we need to, we can't make God bigger, but make Him more prominent in our life. Make Him the focus of our life. By by truly realizing how little we are, by focusing on His work and power, by focusing on His character, and focusing on His salvation. We ought to pray, God, help me never get accustomed to the fact that I am a child of Yours by faith in Christ Jesus. Help me to never take that for granted. And then, by focusing on His promises... I mean, I, I love Romans chapter 8. There are so many great truths in Romans chapter 8. But, for example, the promises of Romans chapter 8, there is no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. Focus on that promise. The promise that the Spirit would intercede for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. The promise that God is for us. Who can be against us? And then the last part of the chapter, beginning at verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I mean, you think of that. That in Christ we are brought in fellowship with God and nothing can separate us from the love of God. If, if all the events that happened in Job's life were to happen in ours, none of that can separate us from the love of God. And God is for us and, and the Bible is full of promises 
He began a good work in us, and He will do that work in us. And it's, it's coming to where we no longer focus on the circumstances, but we focus on the promises of God. And so it's important for us to know the promises, and not just to know them, but then to truly plant our faith in them, to truly stand on the promises. So we're going to ask you now to stand as Jason comes and lead it, leads us in um, verses 1, 2, and 4 of standing on the promises. And you think of it. Think of the promises of God. This makes God big in our life when we stand on His promises. Standing on the promises of Christ my King, through eternal ages let His praises ring. Glory in the highest I will shout and sing. Standing on the promises of God, standing, standing, standing on the promises of God, my Savior, standing, standing, I'm standing on the promises of God, standing on the promises that cannot fail. When the howling storms of doubt and fear assail, by the living word of God I shall prevail, standing on the promises of God. Standing, standing, standing on the promises of God, my Savior, standing, standing, I'm standing on the God, standing on the promises I cannot fall, listening every moment to the Spirit's call, resting in my Savior as my all in all, standing on the promises of God, standing, standing, standing on the promises of God, my Savior, standing. So, to help us to make God big in our life, to make Him the focus of our life, we indeed understand how little we are. We focus on His work and power. We focus on His character, the salvation that He's brought. Focus on His promises. And then we focus on the future. As believers, the best is yet to come. As believers, all things will be made right. As believers, there will be justice. As believers, the battle for sin will be over someday. As believers, we rejoice that the best is yet to come. And that, that is all because of God. And so that means... We see the bigness of God and we make God prominent in our life that this life is a vapor. 
It appears for a little while and it vanishes away. And we're reminded of that over and over again. Through this life, we're reminded that we're feeble and frail and and the older we get, the less we can do. And we're reminded of it as family and friends depart from this life and go to heaven. We're reminded, don't set your affections on earth. Set your affections on things above. We're not citizens of this earth only. Our citizenship is in heaven. And we look forward to the future. And, and that, that brings God front and center because it's all about God, the future. And, and it's all God that makes the future desirable. And it's all God that makes the future what it will be. So, the song, How Great Thou Art, talks about nature, the first two verses, talks about the great salvation, but now we're going to sing the fourth verse, okay? When Christ shall come with shout of acclamation. See, that's all about God. And take us home, what joy shall fill my heart. When we focus on the future, we'll see God. When Christ shall come with shout of acclamation And take me home, what joy shall fill my heart Then I shall bow in humble adoration And there proclaim, my God, how great Thou art Then sings my soul, my Savior God to Thee much of God, if we make Him the focus of our life, let me just share with you four things that it will do in our own lives. Number one, it will give us purpose. Chuck Swindoll said, life is 10% what happens to you and 90% how you react to it. Everything that happens in our life happens for a purpose. And the way we understand the circumstances of life either will bring you hope or it will bring you dread. There may be no earthly reason that we know of for a disaster that may come into our life, but there is a heavenly reason. And in realizing God has put us in whatever circumstance we're in to glorify Him. That gives me purpose. It's not to figure out why did this happen. God never told Job why this happened. But He wanted to glorify God through Job and His response. And whatever happens in your life, whatever has happened... 
whatever will happen in your life, the purpose is always the same as a believer. I need to show the glory of God by how I respond to this. I need to respond to this in a manner that shows His power. These events that come into our lives are opportunities for us to show the difference Christ has made in our life. To show the difference that He's made. We are to represent Christ. We are His ambassadors. And and when we come to realize the issue is not the circumstances. 10% of what happens to you. Life is 90% how you react to that. And the, the reality is, I have purpose. Whatever comes here, I need to glorify God in this. I need to show the greatness of God. I need to show the character of God. I need to show the working of God in my life and how He is at work. Job's view of God may have been enlarged thanks to Elihu's comments. But when we turn our focus toward God, that He becomes our life, it gives us purpose beyond this life. Every, every other purpose in life will slip through your fingers and be gone except glorifying God. That is eternal. So it gives us purpose. Secondly, it fills us with peace and joy and love. If Christ loves me, does it matter who hates me? Not really, right? If God smiles on me, does it matter who frowns on me? If God says, I am His, does it matter who rejects me? See, our relationship with God cannot be broken. And so that gives peace. That gives joy. That ought to give us a greater love for God that then should be transferred in a greater love for others as well. But it, it, it is only when God is our life, when He is made much of, when He is our life, really. Thirdly, it frees us from fear. What, what in this life What can this life do to us when we are in Christ? Fear not, Jesus said, fear not him who can kill the body. Fear him who can kill both body and soul. Stephen was a man who made much of God. And because of that, he was stoned. And as he was stoned, he was praising God and giving glory to God. How does that happen? Because God was his life. Paul and Silas, for, for preaching the gospel, were put in prison and put in stocks and, and abused in the prisons. And how did they respond? 10% what happens to you, 90% how you respond. They prayed, they sang praises, they gave glory to God. They witness to the others in the jail. Why? God is my life. 
The circumstances, wow, I may not have chosen these circumstances, but I'm here and God wants me to glorify Him in this. And it may be good circumstances, but my purpose is the same. I'm here to glorify and show the greatness of God. That's our purpose as believers. That's our purpose as children of God. And so he said, you don't need to fear what will come in this life. God is in control. We can trust him. God has not given us the spirit of bondage again unto fear, but he's given us the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. We cry out to God. And so when fear comes into our heart, it's an evidence that we're making something else bigger than God. God isn't big enough if fear comes in our heart. So it frees us from fear. And making much of God will glorify God. God is pleased when we make much of Him. His Spirit is grieved when we make much of anything besides Him. God is magnificent. He is mighty. He alone is awesome. Without Him there is no holiness. Without Him there is no forgiveness. Without Him there is no absolute truth. There is no reason to endure. There is no hope beyond the grave. That describes the majority of people today. They have no purpose. They have no hope. When we think too much of ourselves, we're not thinking enough of God. And by nature, we all think too much of ourselves. I'm not just thinking thinking too much of ourselves. I'm really good. We're thinking about ourselves all the time. Too much time-wise. We're thinking about ourselves rather than God. God, how do you want to use me in this situation? Rather than feeling sorry that we're in this situation. So we ask, how big is your God? Is He big enough to be trusted? Is He big enough to be held in awe and ultimate respect? Is He big enough to trust your worries and fears too? When God is small, our problems are magnified. And we retreat in fear and insecurity. When God is great, our problems pale into insignificance and we stand in awe of God And we worship the king. I think of the three Hebrews. They served a big God. And they were willing to be cast into the fiery furnace. And they said, we know our God. And our God is able to deliver us. But if in God's plan he doesn't, praise be to God. God was bigger than the king and bigger than the armies of the king and greater than the fire of the king. And they said, our God is great. And they went to the fiery furnace, not screaming and their heels dug in. They went to the fiery furnace and they walked out triumphant. 
And they said, even if we perish, to God be the glory. The circumstances don't matter. It's how we respond to them. And this was the message, holding forth the greatness of God. And we're going to go on and see in the closing chapters of this book, now God steps on the scene. And he himself shows Job, look how great I am. Our problem is our God isn't very great. Oh, we know it. We, we can say all the right words. But in reality, is he big enough that we trust him in every detail? Heavenly Father, I pray that you would personalize these truths in our hearts and minds And that we would learn from these chapters that you have inspired and given to us, not as just more blah, blah, blah in the book of Job, but Lord, making much of you. And I pray that we would become alert to what minimizes you in our life, and that we would consciously... Take steps of action in our thoughts, in our words, in our deeds that would help us to keep you foremost in our heart and mind and actions and that you would be seen as you really are, the greatness of you. So, Lord... I pray today, if there are individuals here who have never come to see the greatness of your salvation, the forgiveness of sin, that we are no longer condemned, Lord, I pray that we would come to see that today and that we would receive the gift of your forgiveness by faith in Jesus Christ. And then, Lord, I pray for every one of us as believers, you know how we're prone To make man, ourselves or others, bigger than they really are. And in so doing, we make you small. Lord, I pray that we would have the faith of Paul and Silas and Stephen and the three Hebrews and so many others who have gone before us. And Lord, that we truly would make you our life, that you would be our focus, and that we would rejoice in every situation as an opportunity to represent you, an opportunity to show the difference that you make, an opportunity to bring glory to you. So Lord, we plead your mercies that we would walk in your ways For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.